be out of here, yeah. right? If you don't mind opening this and just grabbing yourself a cup on the top of the lens. You can do the creepy lava cup that changes colors. Why does it change colors? Oh my gosh. All right. Are you okay? Are you grabbing a cup? Or? Yeah, this is mine. Okay. Um, so he'll change. You'll see when you fill him up. It was, I, as you can see, there's a lot of llamas in my room. Ah, because I, I saw some photoshopped. Uh, indeed. In your pictures. Um, you have a llama thing. I did since grade six, but it, I think everyone feels so hopeless about how to help in this terrible time. And so they've seized on that. My, my parents were like, please, no more llamas. Llama overdose. Llama and alpacas. When yeah. I was a kid, there was just no llama paraphernalia being sold, and now it's, like, become popular. It was a harmless uh, obsession back then, and now... My, my dad spent years trying to find me a stuffed animal of a llama. And now... Now I have ten. Too many. <laughs> ten. This is dandelion root tea that we're going to have. Yes. So um, I'm going to give you a roasted one. I'm Perfect. Have a raw one. You see this cricket? Cricket energy bar. Now is cricket gluten free? <laughs> so uh, I know you and I talked quite a bit about Oaxaca. Yeah. And my little cousin, who is four at the time that this happened, heard that cousin Jody, living in Oaxaca, ate chapulines. And my my cousin, her mom, found her in the yard trying to eat bugs. To, to be like Cousin Jody. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to send you some cricket bars. There you go. Instead. Right. Uh, without without the lady at the market to fry them up in uh, garlic and salt and yeah. chilies, it's not the same. I was like, did you tell her that Jody eats them when they're cooked? And she <laughs> said, well, no, I was too busy freaking out that she was eating whatever right. was in the yard, you know? It's amazing. Well, she's going to outlast us all when oh, the apocalypse she's comes. She's amazing. My whole family, that side of the family is not a big fan of experimenting with food and I get the blame for my little cousin being yeah. as exciting, excited as she is. That's she wants to eat every animal on earth. We have to break it to her. That's just not happening. <laughs> not so, without a lot of money. Dandelion root tea I first tried in 2004 when I was in China. Yeah. And it has become a part of my life and is sort of an interesting way to discuss what my life has become. Uh, yeah. It opens up. It's become a part of your life for not great for, reasons. For shitty reasons. Yeah. This is like HBO, I can swear, I assume. You can definitely <laughs> swear. So I'm giving you a roasted root. I'm having raw dandelion This is where I pour hot water directly on my microphone. That's right. I'm looking how close this is, and it's a little worse. You gotta get in. Uh, gotta get in real close for that primo tea sound. What happens when a celebrated travel writer finds herself suddenly, inextricably homebound? You might think that is a COVID-related question. But the writer in this case is Jody Ettenberg, and her own personal lockdown began many months before the pandemic. Incapacitated in the prime of her life by a cerebrospinal fluid leak, she went from being a person that I always somehow expected to bump into randomly at a noodle stall in Hoi An or a flower market in Ocotlan, to someone who is pinned down in her own apartment in her hometown of Montreal by unrelenting pain. And yet, as you will hear in this conversation, Jody is very much the same person. 
The same blogger who marched a legion of readers with her around the world is now walking them with the same determination down a very different path. And she still has that blogger's unflinching commitment to transparency. She posted a picture of this interview set up on her Instagram. She was in the same position she spends most of her days in, prone on her bed, while I sat in a chair beside her and asked questions. It's a remarkable way for two old fellow travelers to meet. But I'll say this, we recorded this in the autumn before COVID, and I've thought a lot about Jody ever since. Her life has foreshadowed the moment that we all find ourselves in now. She knows she can help with some new projects and new ways that you can get involved. I'll tell you all about it at the end of the interview. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. All right, well, let's, let's turn the clock uh, way, way back. We are in Montreal, the city where you were born. That's correct. And grew up. Uh, we're kind of in the shadow of Mount Royal, which uh, I climbed this morning, and it's just fucking gorgeous like you're here at a wonderful time of year as well all the trees are turning so it's it's just a beautiful place right now it's so bizarre because as an american to show up uh in montreal take a hike and have the literal symbol of canada just showering down on your head as you're walking the path (laughs) maple leaves everywhere just these bright red maple leaves there's no question that as a as a frequent traveler too i left montreal in 2001 and I was almost never here during autumn months, so it, it's sort of a treat for me too to be in the city um, where I grew up. And as I think many of us, we frequently travelers find we come back to things that sort of we took for granted when we were kids, and then think, oh, we really can cherish these now, as we have this beautiful perspective from whatever wider lives we've lived. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, we'll, we'll talk plenty about travel, but uh, it is a huge. Uh, I've always felt it's a very large hole in the ozone to tear in order to fall back in love with things I probably should have appreciated in the first place. <laughs> that's a fair statement, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a dim way of looking at it, but it is it is true that that's one of, you know, for me it feels like one of the bigger, uh, most reliable takeaways from travel is a little bit of like, hey, it's not so bad. Now, I, on the other hand, like, you know, we when we spent that month in Japan with the kids a few years ago and my daughter on the first day of third grade, just walking down a sidewalk in New York and just looked around and said, this is disgusting. Jeez. <laughs> so sometimes you realize, The perspective goes both ways. Is right, that what you're saying? I think that's, I think that's the deal. Uh, you did not grow up in this neighborhood. No, I grew up in the West Island, not far from the airport and went to public high school there. But I did go to university at McGill, which is downtown and not far from where we are. And it's... Um, that actually that whole campus is gorgeous right now with the trees changing i walked through it quite intentionally and was thinking about it you you entered i guess the canadian system is different but you entered the law faculty at 19 yeah right i was yeah i applied and i got accepted and i was 18 and started just turned 19 when i started Uh, it's actually not different for most of the country we do what you guys do, which is you do an undergraduate degree. You may or may not take time off to work and then apply for law school. Um, McGill had started when I went to school there, taking people from CEGEP directly, and that's grade 12 and 13 here in Quebec. So high school ends in grade 11 here, and then there's this two-year kind of interim schooling for pre-university education. And they 
decided to take a few of us and sort of shove us in with everyone else. So it's not like a pre-med program. It wasn't a pre-law program. It was, let's all throw you in the same basket and see what happens. Wow. So you're like the fucking Le- LeBron James of law. Like I don't you, think you went that's straight true. pro <laughs> it was, from high school. It was an interesting uh, environment. I think I definitely got, I, I, I look younger than my age now at, at 19, I looked statutory and way, way beyond statutory at that point. So there was certainly, um, a lot of people who made my life a little difficult in the faculty of law thinking I just didn't deserve to be there. Mm. Um, but I think it was probably an important set of challenges to learn. I, I enjoyed the education. I, I tell people, my American colleagues, when I worked as a lawyer in the States were shocked because my first day of of civil law property here, we learned about Locke and Aquinas. And the first entire day was about like, what is private property? And do we even have the right to own property? We, we studied the song lines. And my American lawyer friends were like, you did what now? Because it was so, you know, case law based and having a combo of the civil and common law system was was really fascinating and comparative and I think my brain naturally worked that way in a comparative way and that has always served me well in my writing and travel and I guess law school just fit into that great bucket as well but now by by tantalizing you with Locke and Aquinas <laughs> did they perhaps set you up for the law career you ended up having which uh, means I, I departed the law career eventually you know I, I'm I mean, not sure listen I did read uh in the Montreal Gazette 2011 you were lawyer of the week uh, <laughs> I, you did your, your research I saw this so uh clearly and that was after you had already ditched all those fools in their in their corporate jobs so well I'll say that I applied to law school on a bet uh, right before applications were due. I had no desire to be a lawyer. Nobody in my family are lawyers. Contrary to what people think, they assume my parents were like pushing me hard or they were through. My parents were not excited that I went to law school so young. They were like, you should go to undergrad and have fun. And I, when I got in, I just thought, you know, this is, this is cheap for an amazing education compared to what law school could be. I'm a Quebec resident at the time. My tuition was very reasonable. I think it was 1600 a semester at the time that I was there. And ouch. And I, um, good for you. That, that's very painful. But I, I make it clear because it's part of how I was able to save up and quit my job as a lawyer and then build a business without the debt. I mean, I, I try and say that in every interview I do with anyone who's American because the school debt there is astronomical and it's a different position. It was a privilege to be able to have, you know, state funded education that, that gave me this gift of hubris, I guess. That If that's what hubris is, sign me up for that, that sin. I mean, it is amazing to imagine, and this is, this is somewhat true with medicine, with laws, you're describing it in the United States, that you're creating both a kind of pedagogical and economic, you know, cage shackles. around yeah. right it's like the golden shackles we, we haven't broadened your horizon at all which is great because you're gonna have to do some fucking billable hours for the next 30 or 40 years in order to pay off your loans and keep up with your you know law firm colleagues and uh and and the wheel goes round yeah i think it is it is not a decision i would have made so flightily you know had i well first of all it's not possible in the states to go at 19 but if I if it was a similar position and the tuition was co- comparable to what American tuition is, I likely wouldn't have gone. And it was because it was the same cost, I believe, quite close to what a regular undergrad would have cost me here. Um, 
or in Ontario, a little more in Ontario because I would have been a non-resident, that I decided to, to give it a shot. And I was recruited by a firm in New York City um, and ended up taking the job because the bar exam there was nine weeks of study and then you started at full salary, whereas in Canada, it was a year of bar school and, and exams and you had a stage for one full year. You were a stagiaire and so you articled basically and at a much reduced salary. And in my head already, I knew I wanted to travel and I just chose the path that made the most sense to save up money quickly and leave, essentially. And I stayed longer than I expected to, to be honest. Um, I was in a, a great relationship. That's what happens, right? You, you want, of course, to, to make changes in your life when you're with someone you love. But in the end, um, yeah, I, I ended up quitting in 2008. And when you were 28, I right? <laughs> yeah. So that was nine years of, you know, between studying and practicing the law. I took some time off uh, between my finishing law school and starting. It is a ridiculous story where my law firm thought I made a mistake on my date of birth because they didn't realize I was then called Doogie Hauser for the rest of the summer that I was there. The first, actually, the first summer that I was in New York as a, as a summer associate, I wasn't even legal for, I turned 21 at the end of the summer and everyone flipped out because they'd been giving me alcohol, of course, I neglected to mention. Um, it's against the law, you legal people. Yeah, I'm doing, right. I'm doing great over there. Right, amazing. So I, I basically, yeah, I had some time off. I, I did a one-year um, French master's, um, like a, not an LLM, but in France, I studied for a year in economic integration and um, intellectual property law in Europe the year the euro came in, which was a fascinating time to be there. Wow. And then I spent a year in South America, um, in Uruguay and Argentina. And I hadn't traveled before I went to France. It was the first trip I ever took alone. And I, w I freaked out. But I, as you know, it obviously in ignited something. <laughs> but you had to stuff back in the box. Temporarily. Uh, for a few years. Um, well, let me ask you about French. You, so your background is Jewish, your family... Uh, is it part of the Anglophone community, the French community? Does it? Does it? Are there both sides? Uh, in my family, it's Anglophone, uh -huh. and my uh, my French came from the immersion here growing up. And then I at McGill, the program I was in, if you wanted to study civil law, you know, some of the classes were only offered in French. The civil code, you know, is translated, but some of the doctrine that interprets the code was only in French, and um, and so. I was I was bilingual, but I think that really deepened my uh, my language skills because it's one thing to have a conversation in another language; it's another to study yeah. the law. <laughs> yeah, God, that's fascinating. Um, but it basically there can be kind of Jewish Quebecois who are French and some who are English. I don't know. I'm, I think for a, the most as part, as a quasi Jew, I'm kind of interested in like <laughs> where the, where you fit in on this kind of tribal. My family is Ashkenazi, and it's often the Sephardic families that do have French-speaking uh, family, because not from Quebec one necessarily, but they are Moroccan Jews or from parts of the French-speaking world that have come to Montreal and then had families here. Um, the families I know that are Jewish that, that are first language, not English, are usually because they're Sephardic, not Ashkenazi. All right. Well, thank you for that quick demographic detour. <laughs> um, but so anyway, you were already bilingual, but not having done that big kind of solo experience until uh, after 
your law firm found out you were drinking underage <laughs> and they I wanted used the you excuse. to ripen. That was, it was actually a different firm that got my birth date wrong. And I, and I, I had said, you know, now that we're chatting and they were shocked at how young I was, like, how about would it be possible to keep my offer open and, and hold it for me and I could take some time and then come back when I was closer in age to everyone else. And they agreed uh, to do that, which was a, a really insane gift to get at your early 20s, this guaranteed job waiting for you. And I was like, peace out. Yeah. Again, I guess you're, you know, you often run into this because there are so many people who were jealous of the life that you had created for yourself as this kind of wandering, traveling, pedagogical former lawyer. You know, like I have seen it. You're often like, hey, listen, you know, results may vary. Like right. you probably won't have the thing that you had of like a, a standing job offer. Maybe you don't have the the lack of student debt. Uh, I think the difference for me personally, and, and, and I've, I've seen this in others who've built interesting lives for themselves, is just this sort of thread of subversiveness that exists, even if it's not the first thing you come across. Like there was no question that in, in taking that job in New York, I wanted to go to Siberia. That was the dream I had forever. That was where I wanted to travel to. Only with time did it become, hey, maybe I'll take another place to see at the same time. Oh, maybe I'll just take a round-the-world ticket. You know, it, it sort of grew, but Siberia was the goal. When when they asked me about the date of birth, you know, the first thing I thought of was, like, how can I then keep the system intact but but try and move it around a little bit to see what can happen? Like, you know, I'm, I'm always polite, but I do think there takes a little bit of wanting to think differently, wanting to, to try and push here and there a little differently to build something more interesting that you have to sort of innately want. And in a lot of the amazing people I've met over the years, yourselves included, who've done something beautiful and put out something into the world that makes a big difference, it's because they have that sort of tendency. I see you're smiling. You know the subversive tendency that you... I'm thinking of several, <laughs> several occasions in which we've... Uh... I mean, it, and you don't even have, it's not even, it's not like you're just robbing banks. No, you're... subversive doesn't mean criminal. It just means that you can take things as they are, I think, and, and have this inkling that, that with a few minor blocks moving around, something beautiful can unfold, even though it's not what you're supposed to be doing. These rules can kind of work for you. If yeah, you, without, if you ask without the right flouting way. them aggressively, yeah. right? I mean, when I quit my job, people thought I was nuts. I walked in the partner's office and I guess the look on my face, I didn't sleep the night before. I don't know why I was so nervous. I was nervous that I would make them upset. You know, it's such a silly, it, it, it's not silly because I had a good relationship with the firm I worked with, but I felt like I was letting people down by quitting, um, even though I was probably just a fungible billable unit. Um, but he saw my face in the morning and was like, no, <laughs> no, we, no, you didn't come to us first. And like, we, we can counter this offer. Like, wh where are you going? You know, he saw it right away and I was like, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think you can counter this one. I've been made a, an offer by Siberia that you cannot Right, match. like, so. I'm, why? And why, he was like, what? Why Siberia? I mean, you said you, you liked llamas when you were very young. <laughs> there so, are no llamas in Siberia. Uh, why Siberia? I saw a documentary about the Trans-Siberian trains when I was younger. It's actually on, or it was on. YouTube, someone had sort of ripped it and, and made it digitalized. It's like terrible, terrible. I watched it and I was like, wow, that, that's what inspired me. I remember when we interviewed you, God, like seven years ago on Roads and Kingdoms, I remember you having mentioned that. I, I just found that 
I found that interesting. I mean, I, I also suffered from Russophilia, although I guess more like uh, Western Russia. But it was still like I don't I don't I didn't have that moment where I was like, Oh yes, mm. this is when it happened. But you actually have a Had document. A you have a, a creative, you know, some something that lived and, and uh you saw and then just changed your whole mentality. I think it, it it isn't that it changed my whole mentality, it's that it it like grew it was the root that started there that grew into this other thing. And I, I feel like there's a lot of things in my life that started that way where something piqued my curiosity and then just kind of festered <laughs> or we could, maybe not festered, but you know what I mean? It grew over the years. But it's like a good festering. It's like, like a, a fungus kind of, it turned into a beautiful mushroom. Like a beautiful fungal festering. <laughs> the best fungal infection. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is amazing for the kids out there. Just remember to let something grow root and <laughs> have to become a beautiful fungus. Um, I uh, think, but I get it, right? And then it's like this kind of recurring motif in your own mind. I mean, Christ, if you were if you were young when you saw this, and then you continued to think about it, and then you let it affect, you know, your kind of, you know, kind of grown up life uh, that you were having in New York. Um, that's that's impressive. Well, even before I started full time in New York, I had that year in France, and I remember the first day. I was I was f- so nervous. I had never gone anywhere alone. You know, and Europe is very similar. In retrospect, I'm like, wow, it's crazy to me that I thought that was culture shock when, you know, hanging out with Nomads Mongolia was much more a culture shock. But at that time, for me, of course, that's all. I didn't have much comparison. I was like, why is the milk not in the fridge? Why are the eggs not in the fridge? This is very confusing. You know, there were just so yeah. many little things that stood out. And I remember, I feel like if you can take one moment that where everything kind of catalyzed for my future treatment of fear it was I took the first weekend there I forced myself at whatever time in the morning I woke up to go to the train station and say where is the next train leaving somewhere really far away and the lady of course was like you're an idiot and she was just so unimpressed with my existence as an entirety and you condescended uh, to me but I I basically wanted I brought a backpack for an overnight trip for the weekend and was like you know just tell me where i can where where's there a train that's going really far away but still in france <laughs> and and I, I love those uh that you got a parisian reaction out of a parisian woman <laughs> <laughs> it was it was uh i was in aix-en-provence but it was oh, okay. uh, a, a similar sort of stereotypically yeah not impressed with my with the fact that i was in front of her and where i went was a place called annecy which is NC is on the border of Switzerland. It is beautiful. I got there. I didn't know where to stay. I found like a youth hostel, basically. There wasn't really like online searching at that time. You know, it was a long time ago. And I trekked halfway up the mountain to stay at this, you know, stay at this youth hostel. They had room for me. And my roommate at the time was this woman. It was a dorm. She had a Canadian flag on her bag. And I was like, oh, hi. I must have been the most eager, annoying <laughs> roommate ever. Hi, I'm from Canada, too. She was like, okay, freak. No, she was very nice. Yeah. And um, and we sort of tra- we explored a little of the city together. And then I spent most of it by myself. And I remember I can still see my sitting around the lake thinking, oh, this is going to change my life. Like, this was so empowering. Imagine if I'd had a terrible time. Right. Like, what would my life have looked like? Those, I don't know. Those two days you get, you know. Somebody cuts up your robbed, backpack. I got robbed, like and, something, yeah. yeah. But instead, it was really stupendous. And 
and I ha I've written about this that weekend as well because you know it was it was opposed to what the things that travel doesn't fix because there's this this kind of fallacy that you're going to go and come back this like this beautiful er human and that's just of course not how it works yeah um, we we uh we are here in front of these microphones as very well-traveled, very flawed humans. Exactly. So for, for Beautiful in our, in our flawed states. <laughs> uh, that's, that's it. That is generous, but it's true. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I do also think that if you had had some series of unfortunate events that had unrolled, uh, unfurled in that one weekend, you would have still probably had the same takeaway. Because one of the things that I think makes you has always made you stand out in the world of people who are kind of solo writers and travel bloggers and so on is that you had always dealt with bad shit and dumb shit that happens as a uh, as a, as just kind of a grown up which is a, a sadly kind of a rare perspective to have in travel writing in general you know I always felt like you metabolized uh, the challenges of travel really well in the work that you did thank you and you still come out people want to travel the way that you travel and you you know you were never, never defeated you know like in that way but that's that's an important it's just so important I think it, I think it's important to be honest and I've always tried to be honest you know I wrote about having terrible anxiety I wrote about things that I was afraid of and then forced myself to do and times that I failed to force myself to do and it, it's really unfair right to to your readers if you're putting this fake version when I started writing there wasn't the kind of social media there is now, right? But it's the same issue. If you're putting this filtered version of who you are, you're not giving people a, a goal to really actively reach. You're giving them something that's actually impossible to reach. And I was always, it felt felt really strongly that I, I wanted to portray myself honestly. That doesn't mean, you know, air your dirty laundry, right? And that's the other concern with being honest online. You want to sort of find that match. But I... I I often talked about how it was really important to have my insides match my outsides in terms of what I was portraying because when there's a big gap between those two, that's when, you know, person, personally you end up in crisis, I think, a lot of the time when you feel so, when you put yourself out publicly and then feel even more misunderstood because you're not putting out your real self. So for me, and I thank you for the compliment, the biggest compliment I would receive was when I had reader meetups and I just fucking loved everyone I met. I was like, these are people, if I met at a party, I would want to be friends with. And that was my confirmation that I was writing in a way that was true because if I was getting these terrible people, <laughs> I would say, hmm, maybe I should rethink my communication style. But I didn't. They were some amazing readers who in the early days are now people who are really close friends. And I'm, I'm super grateful for that, that wider community now. And 
the times where I could meet them in person when I was better. The 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 media property that we're talking about uh, that that was your sort of and is your platform uh, for for our, these writings was called Legal Nomads. You would start it out with a partner right in that first year. Yes, who was the also S- another kind of. Um, uh, evacuee from the legal field well no she she did what we were supposed to do actually so she she I joke that she's my s I have had emails from people over the years as I've joked in the past that have been like hi do you need an s for legal nomads and I'm a lawyer too I was like nah, I'm not taking applications but thanks I I was um I probably should have shifted to the legal nomad at some point but I'm I'm at 11 years branded. I think I'm sort of stuck it's, right now. It's fine. I think it's great. You you represent a tribe that's behind you, even yeah. if uh, even if you're the solo uh, contributor. So basically, you you both were supposed to head back home after right. a year. She was my opposing counsel on one of the last deals that I negotiated, and we met during the closing dinner. Which at that time, closing dinners were rare. They used to be more frequent, but budgetarily, they were sort of more rare at that point. But there was one because it was such a long term deal that was negotiated. And we really clicked, and she had been planning to travel as well. And, and I was just like, we giggled at the story that we we were opposed on this this transaction and then ended up, you know, in a hostel that's, together in that amazing. NS, you know. What, a, what an amazing daydream, you know, <laughs> to have, uh, like, when you're in, in just the dregs of a, of a corporate meeting room and look across the table and be like, that person's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> I see us now. In Machu Picchu. Right, exactly. We did go to Machu Picchu. Um, I think the we met only after the transaction was concluded, but I think what happened is at, at dinner, she was asking what my long-term plans were, and I kind of froze. I'd had some wine. I was like incapable of trying to formulate a proper lie. At that point, I'd already been actively planning to quit, and I just kind of haltingly said, oh, yeah, actually, I'm thinking of maybe taking a sabbatical and traveling. And she was like, oh, I'm interested too. And I was like, Really? And we sort of took it from there. We planned. And she did exactly as I was supposed to do, which was she did a year of travel. And then she went back and has had a very amazing career um, since and is, has a wonderful in-house job right now that she loves. Um, is doing very well for herself. And she said to me, like, Jody, I knew you weren't going back. Oh, really? And, and I said, I didn't. I firmly expected to go back. That was my plan. I had no, I didn't, you know, have in the corner of my mind, I'm just going to do something else. I'm never going to come home. Right. It was truly my plan to come back after a year, but she. So she, strange to be seen by others in a way that you can't see yourself, right? Yeah. She was like, you love, like, you're so alive. I see you when I see you, when we set out together, you know, she was just like the writing, everything. She just felt that it, it was so multifaceted compared to the life I that I was living and that's what I when people ask why I quit you know the narrative that people give me which I fully understand because if I came across this story I would think the same a lawyer burnt out you know said F it quit and then was like I'm gonna stick it to the men like none of that is true with my situation you know it was a long-term plan that sort of organically turned into this beautiful new career but when I think about you know what about being a lawyer that wasn't doing it for me number one it wasn't my life goal to begin with as you know it was just a fit of mischief but I think it's also I felt like I was being paid every single day to mitigate catastrophe and that meant thinking ahead to catastrophe before it happened which I was already doing because I was anxious which is probably why I wasn't a horrific lawyer even though I didn't want to be a lawyer because I'm a great anxious person but right you know it wasn't what I wanted my brain to be doing and to then sort of have this 
you know, unfurling of this wider world in a way that I could interact with it and I could build a business around it and somehow build a community was just so invigorating in a way that the law wasn't for me. Yeah, I mean, and, and definitely, I've, I've always sort of felt this, but hearing you say it, you know, uh, again in this way, it's it's much more not that the law had used you, but you used the law. Like, <laughs> you know, you were always, you were always going to be slung shot out of there and, and, uh, and, you know, the money you made and, you know, that time that you had just enabled you to do it. And it also gave you an identity on the road to, uh, right. Yeah. And I'm grateful for it. Believe me. And I, I don't have any regrets. I don't feel bitter about it. I'm, I'm a, a contract is a contract and it's great to know how to read them and, and negotiate them. But it's also McGill's education was, as you heard, different. And the, the way that, that I, law school kind of unfolded as well was fascinating and instilled a different way of thinking in your brain. Probably one that my family is like, oh, you're a lawyer. These arguments, Jody, you know, it, it's definitely a way of thinking that can be argumentative. But I do think it's that comparative nature that McGill does so well, where it, it was something that came in handy, as I said, around the world and keeping myself safe. Solo traveled for 10 years, you know. But not only that, keeping myself safe while pretty much undertaking a lot more risks than were reasonable. I think, yeah. I think it was a, a very great foundation to start with. And it gave me that sense of security that I, I could go back to something. I probably couldn't go back after 10 years, you know, to be an associate again. But it, it was something that I could do that if this failed, if this business didn't work out, it was there. Yeah, that's a huge, and that's that's sometimes built into some of your disclaimers too, mm-hmm. just feeling like I can take risks because I know I've got this backdrop. But, but you know, I think that's, uh, in some ways, that can belie the, the, the bravery of just going out and, and doing that, particularly in those moments where, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't a financial decision. You weren't making a living, you know, after that first year that felt, you know, sustainable. Um, no, it was risky for sure. And it wasn't normal. It's much more normal now, right? There's a lot more, there's a lot of travel bloggers out there. There's a lot more people taking sabbaticals, becoming digital nomads. You know, when I was doing it, it I was just seen as extremely weird. I was like, I called myself a mini expat. I didn't know what to to call myself. I just would say I eat soup for a living. <laughs> Wherever my stomach tells me to go, I go. And, and that was it. Uh, and, and, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, I think it, you also were off so often in the press too, as just like, because you were like a, a, a avatar for a burgeoning, you know, kind of class that kind of grew up after you had come through this, you know, um, like you're saying, digital nomads has, has kind of become something of a throwaway line in some ways, but you were actually doing it. And the other thing that I thought was really, um, that just tied in with who you are and this kind of, and, and probably the law background is just reading through some of these articles when you're kind of doing Q and A's and so on. You're so fucking organized and you're thinking, you know, <laughs> like the thinking about, and they would say, well, what are the two, three, you know, what are the three things you need to have as a female solo traveler? And you would just be like a whistle and the alarm doorstop. And, you know, I, it's just like, I, uh, I respect that because it's so useful. <laughs> you know, it's such a useful way of communicating with your readers, which is, I think, was the secret to how legal nomads kind of took off. And it's just this idea of having an, uh, to what, what seems like a very messy and kind of crazy world, being able to be organized about your thinking while also doing a lot of long form writing. Um, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a difficult combination. 
Thank you. I think for me, I also, um, I mean, the writing itself, I would be doing if no one was reading, right? I, I've always needed to write. And it, it, it has never been a goal of mine to be a writer because I never thought of it as something other than this need that I had and I would do either for me or for the general public. So the fact that there's there was a market for it was delightful. Um, but I, w- I started the blog for my family, right? Like many, like many of my colleagues have. And I think what was important for me too, it was never to label myself as one identifying thing to the exclusion of others. So as you know, the site never was branded as a solo female travel blogger site. I have celiac disease and I've built these translation cards now for celiacs that are very detailed because it was a pain point that I had, but I, I didn't put myself out as a celiac blogger. And I think the point of that was to try and express to people that it's not about the labels necessarily. It's about going out there and pushing yourself to have these experiences and then taking them, digesting them, understanding how they changed you and made you into hopefully a much more empathetic and understanding person. Yeah, so thematically, it's it's a you blog. It's not, it doesn't belong to any of these other kind of keywords that went out there. And I guess, I don't know, I always felt that way about Tony when people, especially in this weird, you know, BS of like, who's going to be the next Bourdain, you know. Nobody. Well, it's it's got to be a cook because he was a cook who traveled, but you know, after a cook's tour, which was very much labeled as a cook who traveled, right. like that was the last time that he was just like, I'm a guy who, you know, cooks and travels. It's just, you know, the, the magic of him was, was him that he was able to communicate. And I think that's true of any successful, you know, kind of solo creator. It's just, it's gotta be whole 360. It's, it's your thing. And, and for you, you know, the set of challenges that you had were not exclusionary to, other people taking good lessons from them. Now, obviously, the celiac card is not something that I was going to carry around. Uh, you know, uh, come on, Nate. Uh, <laughs> I could help out a friend in need. Although I think I did, you need I, a card. I, I know. I did give my uh, my uh, had a relative who's celiac and had just gone to Japan and was like, "This is the stuff you got to check out." So the the cards that you're talking about are these the kind of amazing resources where they explain in in simple enough to fit on a card or fit on a smartphone screen, like the the issue of celiac for someone who has it that you can show it in a local language and with the local ingredients that kind of match up with them um, yeah the reason i built them was just because what existed which was great and and what i used didn't account for cross-contamination which is like the bane of a celiac's existence because it's not just being gluten-free it's you know if you fry french fries in the same oil as something that had wheat like onion rings that are breaded that oil is contaminated now and it will still get a celiac very sick. So it was communicating that to me that was the most important thing. And I didn't build it thinking it would be a business. I did it because I got sick every day in Japan when I was there. And I was like, I can't be the only celiac with this problem. And that was quite late in my business too. Um, it was only a few years ago before that. Most of the business was through public speaking, freelance writing and other things that I was doing. But once there was a pain point that no one was rushing to fill, I just figured, well, why not me? And, yeah. and I started doing them myself. And you you had been uh, diagnosed in celiac for a long time. A long time. I was the world's terriblest celiac because I did not do what my doctor said, which was to avoid cross-contamination, avoid everything. I was the person who was like, well, these rolls in Beijing look really good. I'll try them. And, and it caught up with me as it, of course it will. It's an autoimmune disease. And eventually your body's just going to tell you that's enough. And, that, and I got extremely sick, uh, 
long-term sick until I really got my act together. And I think I was diagnosed young enough that I was, you know, still thought I was invincible, thought that, oh, well, I feel okay. And I find myself often telling people, you know, listen, I know you think you can eat this thing because your body's not rejecting it outright, but I am a case study for someone who has long-term health issues specifically because I thought I was able to conquer this this thing that is not conquerable in that way. This is a genetic problem. And these things tend to cascade and kind of build on them. Absolutely. Whether or not they're in front of your mind. Right. There's a lot of comorbidities for any autoimmune disease. And I think it's it's difficult because also with the, the expansion of the gluten-free world right now, there are a lot of people who are more casual about the way they consume gluten and it's just not possible for celiacs. If you look at Australia and New Zealand, their measurements are three parts per million, I believe, for testing. So anything above that is not able to be labeled gluten-free. In the States and Canada, it's 20 parts per million. So, you know, it's even, there are some places where they're being even more strict than here in terms of gluten-free labeling. Wow. And that's where that kind of, that 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 push-pull between lifestyle, gluten-free people yeah. and like actually sick celiac, uh, gluten-free has probably not done a lot of favors to the people with actual celiac. I, I actually sell a tote bag that I designed that with the proceeds going part of them to the uh, to a celiac foundation, and it says I'm not being trendy. I have the disease because that's what I used to say at restaurants, so that people actually understood. I'm like I'm really not just. I, I have to make sure there are, of course, reasons people may cut out whatever they want. You know, to feel healthier, whether it's gluten or dairy anything inflammatory. If you have, you know, people with MS doing a vegan diet plus fish, there's plenty of ways that food can be medicine. And I'm a hundred percent not shitting on those people, but to go to a restaurant and say you're celiac when you're not, and then cheat and have the brownie for dessert really screws with people who do have the disease. Right. That's the moral hazard that's going to fall right on top of the head of the next person that comes in. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. So we have established your bona fides as, as this, uh, tremendous creative voice and travel which again you know the last time we interviewed you or the first time was seven years ago and we keep coming back and being in each other's worlds because that's you know that's how matt and uh matt goulding my co-founder and i feel about you and now we're at a point where you are essentially uh, under house arrest of, of some kind <laughs> travelers travel and food writers worst nightmare yes i have been on bed rest pretty much for the last two years uh I would say bed rest makes it sound like it's Victorian era and I have consumption or something, but I've been the pretty vapors. fundamentally incapacitated for the last two years. And, you know, there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast, I think, who are, you know, who also know you and are followers of you to whom, you know, this won't uh, this won't be a surprise because you, you do write about it as you've written about all of your kind of uh, all the journeys of whatever kind that you've been on at, at length and with great eloquence. So this is not for them. They already know this, but for people who are not familiar with your writing and and legal nomads how how did you get here like what what has uh, has clipped your wings in such an intense manner here uh so th- so two years ago uh more than two years ago august 2017 i uh, presented to the er in the states which as i joked to you earlier you don't do unless you have a serious issue i definitely would not want to incur those <laughs> those bills um and they did a spinal tap uh thinking I perhaps had a brain bleed. And the spinal tap led to a cerebrospinal fluid leak, which is a condition I had never heard of. Uh, Like many 
people with the same condition. They had never heard of it until they had one, which unfortunately is common for a lot of things. And the uh, the leak is basically there's a there's a sheath, a membrane that surrounds your spine and your brain called the dura mater. And uh, when there is a hole in that dura mater, the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the fluid that basically supports your brain, it like detoxifies your body for you. It's basically helping keep you alive is leaking out. And so the results of that um, are different depending on the type of leak. There's cranial leaks. I met an MMA fighter who got a cranial leak when he was badly punched and fell and his leak was repaired with the craniotomy, a surgery in the brain. My leak is spinal because I got a spinal tap. And unfortunately, it is a very underdiagnosed condition and imaging is limited. Often leaks don't show up on imaging properly. So my last few years have been a real challenge in trying to get this leak sealed. I have uh, other complications that meant it was much more difficult uh, to get it sealed. Other complications I didn't know about either at the time. Uh, but it's been really important to me to write about it because of how underdiagnosed it is. And a lot of friends that I've made in the last few years that got their leaks through, for example, epidurals during childbirth or epidural steroid injections or lumbar punctures and some even have spontaneous leaks where they coughed and blew a leak in their dura and the reason it's so incapacitating is because your brain is basically suspended by this this wonderful fluid that is at the heart of of your body and not literally at the heart but the core of your body Mm. and uh, when you don't have enough of it the minute you stand up your brain essentially descends into close to your brainstem and and there's that smushing that that affects neurologically all the nerves in your body affects many different pain uh, sentiments in the body but it also gives you a terrible headache the minute you stand up that alleviates as soon as you lay down and it's not so simple when you're leaking long term that positional aspect can go away but for me I had the lumbar puncture and then three days later it felt like someone had smashed me in the back of a head with a baseball bat and I was just gobsmacked I I didn't have I never had you know constant headaches or migraines like this was just so out of nowhere for me and it that's what that was the first clue that that I would be on this pretty astounding journey and so so here we are where you know you can only spend a few and this is an improvement for you you can only spend a few hours upright Mm -hmm. uh, in a day and you know to level set this is we were just talking about your first trip out of the country in which you're climbing up a mountain to right. go to a hostel and, you know, uh, or that you had drunk this tea in 2004 to climb a mountain in China at altitude. Um, this is a very uh, un- un- unusual circumstance for you in your life. Yeah, I think the contrast to the life I led is pretty astounding. And I'm sure anyone who has this condition, and I've met many people at this point in the last few years, uh, you know, it's it's a shock and it's tragic and it cuts their life in a way that's really you know, arresting, but to have the, the extra contrast of, of a life, not just for the travel, because there's the freedom of movement that, and that I grieve a lot, right? Like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to sit a certain way again or climb a mountain again, but it's also just a life of pure freedom that I built, right? With my business, my site, and, and now I'm completely dependent. And that's a really tough thing to reckon with. Yeah, if only you hadn't been so good at creating the life that you know uh that you only had had or shittier life before nate that would have been much better now i don't think so i mean it took time right there was the initial period of like deep and really inconsolable grief 
I, I think it was like a five in the morning at some point in 2017 in November that I woke up and like realized like oh, I'm not going back to Oaxaca like I'm supposed to in February. Like at that point, I still thought I'm going to get better and go. And um, there's been many stages of grief. It doesn't work linearly, as everyone knows, who has had loss in whatever way. But um, I do feel profoundly grateful for the life that I led. And I packed not just a high-powered law job for whatever amount of years, but then 10 years of total freedom nomadic living and, and this beautiful business that I was able to build. But it is obviously you know a struggle to to keep focusing on that it's it's uh it takes a lot of effort to reroute my thoughts because I think it's natural to feel the grief it would be ongoing especially as the as the situation is ongoing you know I was thinking about when I was coming over here and talking to you and and you know I'm I'm not great at online or Facebook support or anything like that. But, you know, I've been thinking about you a lot and, and, and certainly like coming over and talking to you, um, also gave me a little bit of anxiety because you have this, uh, you know, one thing I know from the times that we've crossed paths and so on, and just your writing, you have this like really wicked EQ and intelligence. (laughs) And, you know, it's almost like one of those things where it's like, how do I, I feel like however I would talk to you about this extraordinarily and deeply fucked up situation that you're in that you would, you know, you'd see through whether it's kind of, uh, Pollyanna-ish or patronizing or, you know, or too dark or something. It's just, you know, I'm sure people bring a lot of weird takes (laughs) to you. Uh, and you're, you're like the most equipped person on earth to kind of see them. So it's hard because I don't know, it's just hard to, it's like, on the one hand, I, I could think, yeah, shit, you you did that thing that everybody should do immediately, which is to go live your life like this might be the last trip you can take. Right, right. I, I definitely, first of all, I'm, I was I appreciate that, but you're you're always extremely fun to be around and smart and interesting, and so I I did not worry about the questions you would ask, but I I do think that part of why you know this discussion goes well and always goes well when we chat is that you've also dealt with you know, shit going wrong and loss and done very introspective things to try and get at the root of how to process them. And that's what I found interesting about this. You know, it is difficult. I I have, I've been very hurt by people that I thought I was close to who basically dropped off the earth when this happened. And I've been surprised by others who I thought were acquaintances who've become like a bedrock of my, my day to day. But what the com- the common thread between the people that I I'm close to right now I think is that they've all dealt with some sort of shocking loss or shocking change in their life that has caused them suffering that they've had to move through and I completely understand that if you've never had those things happen in your life yet and they will <laughs> but if you haven't listener they will then they will no I mean everyone has to deal with some sort yes. of suffering no matter how privileged you are but if they haven't had it at this point, it is very difficult to understand how to approach this. And then those are the people that come across really crassly or saying things that are actually quite offensive unintentionally in their way of trying to handle it. I, that is not what I was worried about with you, of course. But I have I have definitely had some gentle conversations where I've said, like, that's not really 
nice of you to say right now. <laughs> yeah, that's not the thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. My, I feel like whatever. And, and as, as you have very smartly said in the past, it's not a competition for, you know, kind of agonies. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's, it is, however, a constant reminder that you really need to learn how to accept and let go when stuff goes wrong. And in this case, you know, I mean, this is just almost biblical in in its intensity. What we didn't talk about, which again, my readers do know, is that the night that I was in the hospital for the lumbar puncture, the apartment that I was cat sitting for was being robbed while I was at the hospital. And the guy who came in that we have a screenshot for had a, a mask on and he's carrying a white cloth in his hand, which matched up to, you know, rapes in, in Brooklyn. And who knows who knows what would have happened had I been home you know like there there's just so much that's sort of sharp and and intense about the situation for me the the CSF leak the way to fix it if conservative you know laying on your ass for a long time doesn't work is to get a blood patch an epidural blood patch where they take your blood from your arm and they inject it around the area where they think the leak is for me it took a long time to get a patch because I was rejected for when they told me oh no you're not it's going to heal on its own it's impossible that it doesn't heal on its own which of course we know is not true and by the time I finally got treated for it uh, I ended up having to get four rounds of blood patching and during the last one I went into such severe anaphylaxis that they had to jab me on the table with with epinephrine like nothing has been simple about this journey it's been it's been astoundingly astoundingly sharp and biblical is what I say it's like a very a very over-the-top version of what life is and you know my my friends joke well Jody your whole life has been that way right like what did you expect I was like come on <laughs> do we really expect our tragedies to mirror our highs but right you you were uh, the the extremity that you were looking for I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel that fair to hold that against, no, you know, it as, does not. as a, uh, as a sort of, uh, a forepicture of what, what would come on the, uh, on the flip side. No. And so during this, this entire process and this journey, as with anyone who deals with this kind of extraordinarily extreme change in a one shocking moment, you know, you have the choice to how are you going to approach it? It's, you know, you think of, Man's Search for Meaning, right? Where he writes about he couldn't change his circumstances in the camps, but he could change the way that he reacted to them, the way his mind handled them, the way that he internalized it. And that's definitely even more, way more extreme than what I'm going through. But I, I've tried to spend these two years working very hard on myself and working to let go of that too. Of, of this, of the grief, of the anger, of whatever comes up, because none of that contributes to my body wanting to heal. Hmm. And I've spent the time reading about neuroscience and psychoneuroimmunology and all sorts of wonderful things and learning about the immune system and the body because every bit of information for me helps me understand more why that's important, why it's important to keep moving through without pushing away and that is a really difficult thing because it's really against the instinct of being human. It's sort of the cosmic joke here, right? It's it's essentially bumping up against what our instincts tell us not to do. In what sense? Well, that that, that our brains, science tells us our brains tend to create negative thinking more than positive thinking and that it takes more effort to create neural pathways that are that are not negative. But that is actually what gets us to a place where our bodies can be the most healthy, where we're not 
you know, inducing our immune systems with the chemicals of stress and we're not changing the way that our body perceives our circumstances with these negative stories we're telling. And, you know, this is a negative story. There's just no two ways about it. But my work has been truly to try and find the threads that are not negative and to, to build something out of them because it's really been the only way to survive. You had said something, I think, before we started about how how people can be very hard on themselves, particularly in, with uh, CSF, because it, there had been something that they assented to that began this long process. Or, you know, even hearing your story about celiac and I was, you know, how you were off piste and you were eating things you shouldn't have. And, you know, just that feeling of like it's so... The recrimination. Yeah, it's so natural and so human. How do you how do you then spend time kind of working on kind of in, in improving yourself and your mentality and your, you know, your outlook while not blaming yourself for this, for the situation you're in, you know, of yeah. like. I mean, I think for a lot of the, the leakers that I know where their leaks are iatrogenic as well from a, from a procedure, they beat themselves up for consenting. But in reality, you know, had they understood the risks fully, they wouldn't have, it, it wasn't necessarily all on them, but it, it makes us feel better to think we had more control than we necessarily did. And then there, then where else do you put that anger if not on yourself? But it is destructive to put it on yourself. I think for me, I've spent a long time, many, many hours a day meditating, um, doing EMDR therapy has been important. Um, what is that? It's eye movement desensitization response, I believe is the, is the, the acronym and it's um it's essentially a type of uh, therapy that's used for PTSD it's often used in veterans they don't know precisely how it works but essentially it involves bilateral stimulation so either tapping or eye movement is the original one while processing through trauma in a way that almost allows you to take yourself being in the traumatic experience and then move yourself away from that and into almost seeing it on a screen yeah and that helps your body First of all, it processes it on the spot. So, in a, in similar ways to hypnosis, where you're sort of like shifted those pathways immediately. That's what happens during these sessions. But I've been using it in in a way to to deal with the trauma of of the puncture and that guy and everything that happened and some other other near death experiences on my travels. But also just to try and shift my mindset and continue to use it in a way that's um that's not exactly how it was intended but has been really beneficial and combined with meditative work yeah i mean that sounds very ketamine like it does level yeah yeah yeah. but in in unlike with ketamine it would be the equivalent of you know psilocybin with a protocol that goes with it Mm. except instead of medicinal mushrooms you're using your bilateral tapping and it's it's essentially there are specific protocols you follow um that, that the therapist would set out and you'd go through uh, and sort of talk through with them as you go. So it's it's not as much of a solo experience uh, compared to some of the trips. Right. And the, the extreme shortcut nature of just popping some ketamine is like, <laughs> I always feel like you're going to get out of something what you put in on some yeah. level. You well, know? and there is, there, there are, as exciting as the new developments are, as great as it is that, that people are starting to relax their idea of, these substances and see that they actually can have beautiful benefits um, when combined with with good protocols. You know, if you have a brain that's wired a certain way, there can actually be worsening and and it is good to have a professional involved. You know, even the, I did a 10 day Vipassana, right? That was what started this for all, for me, the meditative aspect. And there, there are stories of people having psychotic breaks 
when they do a 10-day silent uh, meditation course because their brains were wired in a way that, that this sort of evolved. And Yeah, that's what always fucked me up about Landmark, uh, which I'd, I'd done as a part of a... Um, a story I wrote for Time Magazine. You're making, Whoa. you're making a very appropriate. Don't do it. <laughs> but yeah, Landmark Education, which was you know had evolved out of Werner Erhard's Est and was like a very aggressive kind of uh, group therapy with completely untrained, you know, sort of uh, magnetically personality people, right. you know, running it. But there's no psychologist within a fucking mile of those places and they were pushing people into some real dark places yeah some of the stories i've read about landmark are pretty extreme yeah i think it, it comes down uh, for for this journey for me about about the choice right like i'm not pollyanna i never have been i've always been honest about you know my foibles but i think i have i have to if i want to get better i have to choose to see things in terms of possibility and not in terms of anger or negativity and these processes that I've told you about in you know, EMDR and even the meditation, it's almost like that helps with the discipline that involves changing a lifetime of like 40 years of my brain working one way and having to change it to be a different way in order to, to do that. And I think I'm, it's, it's the biggest work and the biggest challenge of this time for me and I try to see it as, okay, I'm in, I'm in bed and this is not where I want to be. I'm not in the world, but I am able to help people from this state, not just with the celiac cards, but in helping raise awareness for CSF leaks and more. And I'm taking this time to try and, you know, make my brain the way I've always wanted it to be, to be honest. I traveled, I was like, I'm anxious. I'm just going to be anxious as a lawyer or I can be anxious doing really fun things that would make anyone anxious. Let's go with, you know, option B. And... I just thought that's how my brain was. And I think this this process for me has also been beautiful in that it's shown how much you can actually change your body with your mind. Like It's not just the cliche of mind over matter. There's some amazing science that emerges on that front every day. And I think staying curious, which is what drove my entire life, right? I chose food as the thing I wanted to write about the same way that Naomi DeGreed, who you interviewed previously, right, talks about food as the lens for her work. And it's the same for me. It was the lens that gave me everything, gave me history, gave me culture, gave me these amazing, interactive, beautiful experiences. But it was all driven by a curiosity. That the, the biggest boon was I built a business that allowed me to learn everything I could. And now I'm, I'm trying. And it's not easy because... I'm stacked against life experience, which is really shitty. Yeah. But I try to approach everything that I can with curiosity now because I can't see another way to get through this. Well, and I think a lot of the ways that I was talking about, you know, this change in your life is as a complete break, but there is another way of looking at it where it's just, it's a continuation. You know, you have the, you have the community that you built up through legal nomads who are, you know, at your side and, and I, could not imagine someone who would have been better supported, you know, from strangers and kind of people you've never met uh, through this process. Yeah, it's been it's been really overwhelming. I think uncomfortable sometimes. I I I didn't know what to do. It was the it was the dichotomy of this huge tragedy at the same time as this outpouring of love, and it was just like a mind fuck, really. But I'm. Well, what what did you call it? A uh, a virtual wake or something? Uh, a living eulogy. A living yeah. eulogy. Because these I got like these thousands of emails from readers every day saying, 
like my inbox for the beginning when this first happened was just astounding and people just telling me how they felt I affected their life or changed their life in some way. Like you don't get that usually when you're alive. And yeah, yeah, my community, wow, they've been, it's been beautiful. I mean, let alone the extreme amount of llama things that I've gotten from them and I, and photos of soup every day from readers, but it's just just glomming on to the two obsessions they knew about you. Yeah, exactly. Um, as with you and, you know, as the celiac thing had become more a part of your thing, you started to, even before you had gotten ill, you were a leader in that community of celiacs who wanted to travel. Now you're kind of cast into this lot of leakers, as, you, as, as they're they called. call them, yeah. You know, people have these uh, these spinal fluid leaks, and, and that is not the tribe that I think you wanted to be uh, a part of. I don't no. think anybody signs up for that voluntarily, but it does feel like here you are, being a leader in the same way that you used to be for travelers like you're you're giving advice you're giving resources you're trying to make people who didn't know about this shit more aware of it you know it's uh it sucks but it's also not hugely different in its form i guess than than how than what you had been doing and in part thank you i mean in part i think the the tough part is the physical tool that anything takes on me like if I could write more, I would love to be writing more. If I could share more resources, I could, I would. But I but like standing is very difficult. Sitting, yeah. I can't do either. You know, it's just voice to text makes me want to punch myself in the face. There's just it's been difficult to figure out how I want to communicate, and I think I am very grateful for the platform because I do have now over a dozen readers getting investigated and treated for CSF leaks, and just the idea that something has come of it where people who are in pain for a long time are finally like, Oh, there's a reason that nobody looked at before. That's an amazingly wonderful thing to feel selfishly. Right. (laughs) Obviously I prefer that no one was in pain, including me. Um, but I, I am glad that the business that I built, which was originally supposed to be, you know, location independent so that I could eat more is still location independent, but allowing me to, leverage it and and help people in a totally different way i i definitely you know it's hard because there's so much i wish i could write more about and say and do and it's it i'm really like limited by my physical limitations and as much as i've i've never felt like the strongest person in the room you know i'm like five feet tall and and uh and not the largest but i (laughs) I think even especially now it's just it's like something shocking almost still day to day I'm like oh I really can't even do that it's been two years and it's still surprising sometimes where I'm like yep no I don't know if I'll ever be able to sit cross-legged and meditate like I used to I mean that's that's such a basic thing and it's losing the basics that I think is so hard yeah well I think strength is a uh is a very imprecise word (laughs) if if people couldn't imagine you know getting to the point that you're at and and doing it in the way that you're doing it as an act of just sheer brute strength you know (laughs) thank you but i think watching this unfold in your life as opposed to having you come into the the lives of people like me and your many many readers in the state that you're in it's just uh yeah well it sucks you're not the one who should be teaching that lesson but it's it teaches (laughs) a lot of lessons about like yeah what's actually tough and like how you know what toughness looks and feels like I mean, I used to, I used to always think that being brave meant not being afraid, right? Which, which is actually completely untrue because that just makes you potentially a psychopath, but <laughs> to be afraid and to still do it anyhow, 
you know, is, is what I did in life, but I never felt brave. I just felt a little reckless and maybe, you know, uh, confused that other people saw bravery or, or juxtaposed bravery into what I was doing. But when I, um, when I look back to some of the stuff I did, you know, in my travels and in general, I was like, yeah, it really is braver than I thought. It shouldn't take tragedy like that to come to, to reckon with it, right? If only we could see ourselves instead of these terrible stories we tell about ourselves, like as things happen, uh, I think a lot of us would be a lot happier. When I was, when I had that sort of terrible experience at the end of, uh, of the last round of patching that I had got, and uh, I ended up, you know, having to be epinephrine on the table, the doctor was like, you're so calm. And, you know, my throat was starting to close. I had like welts all over my, like I was completely bright red and couldn't, it was, it was just pretty severe. And I just, I was, I remember it so clearly. It's not triggering, traumatizing. There was no therapy needed to work through this moment. It was like one of the calmest moments I've had. The only other calm ones were other near-death experiences. And I remember though, at that time, like thinking, man, I have, I don't have regrets about the life I led. Like if this is it, then I really, I really did okay. And that was a real gift too. Most, most of us don't kind of get that moment to look back and actually not feel like deeply regretful about some things. The thing I was regretful of was someone I dated that I was like extremely annoyed. Why did I do that thing? Why did I date that person? I mean, that's as, as mistakes go in life, that's probably not going to be high up there, you know? That's, it's a, that's a pretty good slate to be able to look exactly. back Exactly. And as, as, again, as extreme as that is, it, it is something that I look at and think like that it really was this processing gift. It was this instant processing of the last, you know, at that point, 38 years of my life and thinking, you know, I definitely grew up thinking I never wanted to work for myself. I was totally fine working for other people. I didn't want to be different. I just wanted to fit in. Right. And like, that is exactly not how I led my life. And I'm so happy that that is not how I led my life. I guess the only thing we can hope for and root for without diminishing the, the deeply like dangerous stuff that you are going through. But I, I see you upright and you've got more time on your feet than you did a few months ago. Like we can all imagine and hope for a future where you get portions of that life returned to you, uh, as, as you can. <laughs> I hope so. And we're going to have Daisy do an amazing illustration. Yay, Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Daisy. Shout out to Daisy D. Uh, all right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. So many thanks to Jody Ettenberg for making this episode happen. Despite all the added weight and worry of the pandemic, she's been making moves of her own. She has opened a Patreon for supporters with different levels corresponding to some of her favorite birds. I personally am Fiona the Robin. Maybe you'll be at Corvid level or a bluebird. But if you enjoyed this conversation, go find your tier and get access to her new newsletter. She's also branching into audio, which is a fantastic evolution for her. More on all of that at patreon.com slash Jody Ettenberg. That's patreon.com slash Jody Ettenberg. This episode was our last from Montreal. Au revoir, bye, 
and thanks for all the gravy fries. Next week, we are headed to the border metropolis of Tijuana, Mexico, for some good weeks of tacos, tortas, cartels, and cocktails. Starting off with Eduardo Chavarin, the designer and marketer and founder of the earth-shaking Mexican pride streetwear brand, Naco. We will meet you there.